Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 268. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Today, I am so excited to be bringing you another conversation with a dear favorite guest, Sarah Payton. Sarah is the author of the book, Your Resonant Self, which I love and often recommend, and the new book, Your Resonant Self Workbook, which I think is a wonderful addition. We recorded this interview in December 2020, and I think since then, a lot has happened. We had the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. That was a horrible horrible situation and people died and our our collective conversation in this country is about how could this happen who's behind it why and what do we need to do to stop it from happening again and one of the things that Sarah and I talked about is how from a neuroscience perspective people surround a charismatic leader and why that's effective from a neuroscience and attachment perspective so it's very interesting to hear her perspective about that. But of course, we talked about a whole lot more than that. If you are someone who has attachment wounds or someone who works with people who have attachment wounds or childhood trauma, maybe all of the above, I think you'll find my conversation with Sarah very interesting. And let's just dive right in. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. And today, I am so thrilled to have the honor of interviewing a guest who was here with us back in 2018, Sarah Payton. Sarah, thanks so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Laura, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
The pleasure is all mine and our listeners, I think. But I'm glad you enjoy coming here, too. You are the author of Your Resonant Self, and you have a new book coming out in May, which is already available for pre-order called The Resonant Self Workbook. I can't wait to talk to you about that and your work. But before we even dive into it, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Oh, thank you, Laura. Well, I'm a person who got really curious about why did my brain work the way it did and what was happening inside of my brain that was causing it to be so uncomfortable in there. And the way that I I kind of managed that before I got to the point of starting to learn about the inside of the brain was that I would just I, I was just an avid reader because as soon as I could get my eyes on a page what what I was starting to understand once I started to learn about the brain was I could get my dang default mode network turned off and my default mode network uh, as your listeners probably know is the part of the brain that carries the automatic voice. And uh, it's the part of the brain that's sewing us into our social lives, that's keeping a consideration of everything that we're juggling in terms of relationship and and what has to be done and who's going to do it and who needs to be connected with and and what's happening with the kids and is everybody doing okay and does our partner have depression and i mean it is all, and and have we committed terrible acts that are making us feeling feel ashamed it's just like a constant ongoing kind of internal tailor that's sewing us all together. And the more trauma we've had, the more the needle of the tailor literally runs through the trauma center of the brain, runs through the amygdala. And every time that we touch the sense of self, which is what the default mode network is doing, it's like we're giving ourselves an electric shock. So people learn to manage this in very different ways. Uh, You can learn to do it with addictions. You can do it with opioid addictions, you can do it with with sugar addictions, you can do it with alcohol addictions, and you can do it with activities like always playing video games or always reading. And that's what I was. I was an always reader along with some other lovely chemical addictions. And if and like it was so intense that if if I stopped my car at a stoplight, I'd grab the book that was beside me so that I could keep my default mode network from attacking me. It was a knockdown, drag out kind of a, a kind of experience. And uh, and so I, I started to have experiences that began to gradually change my default mode network. And I was like, what's going on? What's happening with these healing experiences? What do they mean? What the brain can change? How cool is that? Neuroplasticity? What? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's a, a little bit of an overview of, of my journey. It's been the journey of discovery and gradually making the inside of my brain a nice place to live. Oh, gosh. You have such a pleasant demeanor. It's it's almost surprising to hear that it was ever unpleasant inside your mind. But I know that we all... <laughs> have, you know, our struggles. And it's it's even silly for me to say that. But I appreciate so much that you shared that that's your experience, too, because, you know, even when you were talking about the default network and all the or the default mode network and all the, you know, is everyone OK? Is, is my spouse depressed? Like, you know, that really made me think about how my brain works and the worry and fretting and yeah. You know, just like these little, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Like checking and, you know, it really made it easier to understand that concept for me. 
Yeah, the, the amygdala is actually sitting in there, sending out these pulse waves like a, a, throughout the brain, just checking on everything. It's like always looking for signs that things are not good. So, yeah. so it needs a lot of warmth and kind of really good mothering. That's <laughs> what our amygdalas need. They need to be able to learn that we can, that we are strong enough and big enough to turn toward them, to, toward the emotional centers of the self that carry the the, the trauma seeds, you know, the, the things that have been left behind by difficult experience. We need to we need to develop a trust relationship, which is a little tricky to do, but is incredibly sweet work. Yeah. Yes, your work has been so significant in um, what I have come to understand about healing trauma. Like, well, it's obviously significant in more than just me, but um, with with my clients, I find it's so powerful. Your the resonance that you talk about and, you know, that nurturing mothering of our amygdalas. It's, um, it's so different from these like detached clinical, you know, techniques that, you know, we sometimes hear about like how to, how to move trauma through doing something versus Mm -hmm. the, the nurturing warmth, which is Mm -hmm. something that just has to come through connection. Right. Yeah. And I was so I was so struck by there's a there's an epigeneticist up in Montreal named Moshe Gif S Z Y F if anybody wants to look him up I recommend his YouTube interviews rather than his scientific papers unless you are by training an epigeneticist um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, he I was at a at a conference with him and he said our mother is in every cell of our prefrontal cortex and I was like what <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, if we've got 86 billion neurons and the prefrontal cortex is roughly one third of the brain, then I have 27 billion neurons in my brain devoted to to my mother that are carrying my mother. And that was quite an intense realization. I was like, okay. I need some, I love my mom. My my mom passed on uh, some years ago and I love her still. But she was massively impacted by the trauma that she lived through as a little one mm-hmm. to the point where uh, she didn't often remember things that had happened and couldn't exactly track who I was sometimes. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, growing up in the shadow of a brain that was fractured by its own trauma, right? Yeah. So, so I was like, oh my goodness, my mother is in all these cells of my prefrontal cortex. What does this mean for me and my future? <laughs> yeah, you're like that's a I scary I just thought. Just away from her, and I would be fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Call her on Sundays. <laughs> so, but I, I love sort of this modern metaphor that we have with updating our computer systems with new software. And a sense that we do get to update the moms that we carry within us. I often think of it as like that we get to we get to heal our own internal mothers, and we get to see the mothers that should that should have been had they been totally supported and loved themselves and kept safe from trauma. So it's quite a journey to to do mother upgrades, which I think is sort of the funny. Uh, intention of all therapy in a way. 
Yeah, right. It's really, that's what it comes down to. (laughs) (laughs) Call it what we want, but that's what's really happening. You know, one of the things that struck me as we were talking before the, the recorded part of our interview is thinking about how right now, as we're talking, it's December 2020. And this episode, when people are hearing it, will be out in early March or late February 2021. Right now in the United States and really around the world, there's so much conflict and divisiveness and, you know, violence. And here in our country, politically, we're very divided. There's a lot of mistrust of people who have different views as well as the, you know, just the ongoing problem of systemic oppression and racism. And your work is about how we are interconnected. And right now we feel so divided as a, as a population. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how your work and this, what we're doing in our brains, how it all fits together Mm -hmm. with how disconnected we feel and maybe how we can reconnect. Yeah. Well, as you you mentioned in, in the introduction, I have the new book coming out, the Your Resonant Self Workbook. And um, and this workbook comes from this wondering, really. It comes out of the wondering of why why do our brains do what they do? Why do we do things that seem self-defeating? Why do we have why do we cut ourselves off from others? I was reading a beautiful Rebecca Solnit article this morning where she said our human, our humanness, our humanity comes from our ability to, uh, to expand our circle of belonging out to people who don't look like us, out to people who don't think like us, out to people that don't uh, worship the same God we worship. Uh, she, she said, um, this is, in a way she was saying, this is our task is to expand our circle of love. And, and one of the things that stops us from expanding the circle of love is this, is, is a, is something that the human brain loves. It loves to blame. Yeah. <laughs> so in my progressive moments may love to blame Trump for all kinds of things. <laughs> and uh, and folks who are Republicans may, in their particularly conservative moments, really love to blame progressives for all kinds of things. And this is this mobilization of blame and a mobilization also of, of the experience of disgust mm-hmm. is hugely important for us to begin to understand uh, what's happening in our world right now. So for the last four years, we've been either, you know, watching with great delight or, or watching with stupefied horror. The people who are who have been running the show and the facial expression that we've been seeing more than any other is a facial expression of disgust. Mm-hmm. And this is a very powerful and divisive um, emotion, which I have the sense, I haven't actually looked at all of the current more conservative or, or right-wing leaders across the globe right now, but the ones that I have looked at, including the Prime Minister of India, including the fellow who's who's running uh, Hungary, including Putin, and including Trump, use disgust uh, with almost a mastery that orchestrates a rising tide 
of exclusionary response. Let's let's keep the Syrian refugees out. Let's uh, let's reclaim the the white make America great. Let's reclaim the white Russian world of 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 ownership that the former Soviet Union had. Like there's this um, mobilization of of a very vulnerable part of us as humans, which is the the disgust circuit or the disgust the whole disgust apparatus in the human body, which which includes our facial expression, includes a, a visceral response. And, and when we admire and place our, our, our attention on a leader who is mobilizing the population with disgust, oh, it's so, it's so rewarding for human brains. We are so vulnerable to this kind of reward because it, it creates in-group, out-group. And in the in-group, out-group, we start to experience this rush of oxytocin and belonging that when we are part of the in-group, we get to feel when we look at the people in the out-group. So when the president of the United States speaks about immigrants with words that are connected to uh, large groups of, uh, of rodents or of swarms of insects, then what we're getting is we're getting this oxytocin reward. I mean, sometimes I just sit and spend some time mourning our human brains and their vulnerability to being moved toward divisiveness. Mm. And I'm just, I've been speaking for quite a little time now. Is this, a, is this what you were thinking of when you asked, Laura? Yes, yes, very much. And, and it's, for one, everything you're saying is ringing very true to what I have observed, but also... I don't know about the disgust circuit. And so I think that caught my attention. It's pretty interesting. You know, I'm just in a very basic way, and I hope you will expand on this. But what I'm thinking about is the oxytocin reward. And as soon as I think of oxytocin, I think of, well, I think of breastfeeding. (laughs) And when I think of breastfeeding, I think of nurturing mother. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting to imagine that we get a rush of the hormones that feel bonding when we are excluding others. Yeah. And then there is a host of, um, I'll speak about this host of after effects, and then you can bring me back to any questions you have about disgust itself. But there's a host of after effects because as soon as we, we otherize a group of people, then we no longer actually are looking at their facial expressions very closely. We stop seeing them. And so we stop getting the feedback, the nuanced feedback about their humanness and about their emotions. We lose our empathy when we move into the in-group, out-group experience. The more strongly we have the oxytocin rush of belonging, the less brain resource we have available to be able to to be able to to perceive and understand and have empathy and compassion for other groups so there are a lot of neurobiological after effects of the experience of having more power than someone else as a human and the more that we have power imbalances the more the, the less we read people that we consider to be below us in the power structure wow. it's just like a natural part of our human brain is this kind of leaving of uh, of of connection with others and i think this is why 
Rebecca Solnit was saying that our human, that our humanness, that our humanity depends on us having an expanded circle of inclusion, because then we're then we're holding ourselves with humility. Humility being the primary remedy for imbalance of power and the way that it turns off human brains. That's so interesting. You know, this wasn't what I was expecting us to talk about, but just as an aside, it's like, you know, people are always saying, how can people turn a blind eye to the pain of people who are being separated from their children when they come to the border of our country? You know, it's like who could turn their backs on even the thought of those families being separated in that way. But then, you know, what you're talking about makes me understand in a small way that, you know, it's first of all, it's kind of unconscious and it's happening in the brain as a way to help those people feel more connected with each other. I guess the people who Mm -hmm. don't care about that or even want that that type of separation to happen. Right. It's a bit like that's an unnoticed, unconscious side effect of the creation of the circle of belonging. Those folks who aren't seeing it don't even know they aren't seeing it. If we think about Melania wearing her I don't care jacket Mm -hmm. when she went to the facility where there was family separation, then we, we can kind of feel how much unconsciousness is a part of the picture. Like there, there's not even a conscious awareness of, of it as being uh, undesirable or of it impacting people's humanity. The, the power of oxytocin and in-group belonging is so great. Wow. So, and, oh, I just wanted to say that it moves in in research that's been done with undergraduates. For example, when they look at somebody, a picture of someone who's homeless, they don't even put that person in the person category in their brain. Their brain moves them into the category of, of rubbish instead of in the category of humanness with greater and, and lesser degrees of, con- of uh, contempt and disgust connected with the, the imagery that's being used. Wow. We don't even know, you know, we don't even know that we're, that our humanness is being turned off. So this is interesting because it kind of feels paradoxical to, you know, we were talking about the, we were beginning to talk about how we're all interconnected. And this is a way that we feel connected by being disconnected. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. And, and as we, you know, as we come with our humility and allow other people to be just as important uh, in in the world as we are to let um, the groups that we don't usually see, whether those are homeless people or whether those are people who wear national costumes that look foreign or whether that's people who have a different skin color or people who have a different worship, a different sense of God. If we if we allow ourselves to truly feel into the the joining and and the welcome of each individual person, I often think about how about how our world devalues so many so many voices 
so many brains, so many hearts that could be giving us so much. What you know, I like to imagine living in a world where every voice really does matter, where a grandfather in Peru matters just as much as an Aboriginal person in Australia, and that matters just as much as. Uh, somebody who's sweeping the street in Tokyo matters just as much as, you know, as someone who's serving in Congress. This sense of an intention for inclusion is of great importance to, to our, uh, to our being able to remain emotionally alive to everyone. It's such a funny request. You know, our brains have kind of a natural limit at about 150 people where Beyond that, people kind of move into a blur of humanness. But uh, a blur of humanness is much more inclusive for us than thinking that beyond that, people move into a blur of whiteness or move into a blur of just Christianity and that everyone else doesn't really exist. So we get to we get to really leverage uh, our human capacity to to live out any values that we have of inclusion and of mattering and of paying respect and having humility with each person that we meet. It's it's quite well founded in research as well as being supported by most major world religions. Well, it's it's beautiful to put the philosophical and the, you know, values into practice in neuroscience. Yeah. And I had started out saying that one of the reasons that I wrote the Your Resonant Self workbook was because I was out in the world and I was teaching the science of self-compassion and how we learn to turn toward ourselves. And some people just weren't able to do it. They just, they were just stymied. They had, they, they would read the book, they would do the meditations, but they didn't get the shifts that they were looking for. And, and as I was working, I started to realize, oh, we have agreements with ourselves. We have agreements with ourselves that stop us from moving into self-compassion. And we also have agreements with ourselves, like if we have an agreement with ourselves, not to believe that we that we belong absolutely, that we matter absolutely, then we're walking around with an internal sense of insecurity, which makes us vulnerable to the mobilization of disgust to create in-group outgroup. And because uh, it's so reassuring for our sort of oxytocin-starved systems that we get to belong because we're, for example, white, or that we get to lo- belong because we're Christian rather than Muslim, or we get to belong because we're Muslim rather than Christian, you know, <laughs> whatever the belonging is, it can be such a huge relief to a body that doesn't, that doesn't know how to agree to belong. And so that's what that Your Resonant Self Workbook um, allows and, and supports is an exploration of the different kinds of agreements that we have that stop us with ourselves, that we have that stop us from, from you know, believing these very foundational things. Again, you know, the intention of therapy for people to have a sense of mattering, an absolute sense of mattering for people to have a sense of belonging, for people to to know that their voice matters, to feel the capacity to mobilize, to take action, 
to be able to do something as simple as voting or to do something as complex as running for office. We want these things. We want an engaged and alive populace to be able to to help counteract some of the forces that you were mentioning when you brought up the subject of today's world, you know, the forces of systemic oppression, the forces of systemic racism, and of course, this divisiveness that we're so deeply in the presence of. Yes. Well, I'm, I am really curious to ask you about these agreements with ourselves. How, where do we all have them? Do some of us have them? And how do we get them if we do? Yes, we all have them. Okay. Everybody has them. And they are in a way, they are, again, to use this metaphor of software, they are a program that's we've, that we've inserted that allows us to have a shortcut response to complex experiences and complex traumas. So this brings us on an almost cellular level to the work of Beatrice Beebe, who is a researcher and her team, who, who are researchers in New York City. And we mentioned Beatrice Beebe, when we spoke together in the Your Inner Resonance Therapy chat, Laura, so it's not a completely new new person in, in our space, but Beatrice Beebe, as you'll remember, was the woman who discovered that we, that we by the age of four months, start to edit our facial expression vocabulary in, 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 to bring it in accordance exactly with what our mother can easily do and reflect with her facial expression vocabulary. So if our mother doesn't do sadness, then our face stops doing sadness unless, uh, Great grief forces uh, its way through, but just in the regular nuanced, you know, ways that faces express emotion. By the age of four months, we stop expressing sadness. If the mother never gets angry and won't turns away from or does not reflect an angry face for the baby, then the baby stops doing anger. And some of the things uh, that people may notice, this is something I noticed myself, was that I, I, uh, when I was angry, I would cry. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I noticed was that when I would cry, I would try not to cry. And I could feel my, my mouth kind of writhing. I would cry, but my mouth would be trying to smile. And sadness takes our uh, the corners of our mouth down when we're feeling sad. You can just sort of pull them down a little bit and you can feel in your body a response. Our body is wired to reflect viscerally what our face does. Like we're in this interesting continual loop between body response and facial expression. So what the body so, for example, if we have somebody pull their their eyebrows together in an angry expression, even if they're not angry, their heart rate will go up. Hmm. It's there's a, there's an absolute sort of interwoven cause and effect both between what the body's experiencing and how the face wants to express that and what the face is expressing and how the body tries to, to go right along with that. And uh, and so it's quite a profound thing for us to have facial expressions completely wiped out of our uh, emotional expression. Yeah, I'm deep in thought. And um, <laughs> I think 
I think one question that came to mind for me when you were asking, when you were talking about the facial expressions in Beatrice Beebe's work is you kind of said how the baby learns not to show the expression that the mother doesn't resonate with. But what about if the mother's expressions, I'm thinking of a very fearful mother. Does mm-hmm. it change the way the baby's face appears more, you know, to show more fear or... I think that's one of her conclusions, although that was less what she was, uh, that's something that I haven't found precisely in her writing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Quite transparently, quite transparently, her work moves me so deeply mm. that I, uh, that I can read about a, a paragraph, a paragraph a month is usually enough for me. <laughs> I know what you mean. I have, I have books like that and authors like that too. It's like a small chunk goes a yeah. long way. Yeah. yeah. And her her work uh, talking about the characteristics of uh, of disorganized attachment was mm-hmm. that I I spent about three years just really focused on to create a, a bit of an integration of that for myself and it was it was a, it was a revelation to work with it so deeply. So she may very well have written about an answer to this question, and I may not have found the answer yet. So, But what we do know is, for example, if a mother is very fearful and her face just stays in a fear response all the time, then that's one of the things that people consider uh, a precursor for disorganized attachment. You'll remember maybe Bonnie Badenoch and, and other authors writing that uh, the disorganized attachment comes from the parent being terrifying or terrified. Yes. So we integrate into ourselves this deep sense of the world not being safe, of the world being irresolvably dangerous. And any kind of irresolvability lands quite harshly in an infant's body. So irresolvable grief, irresolvable fear, unquenchable rage, all of these things take babies away from their own natural fluidity and their own dance of exploration, self-understanding, and of the kind of connection that leads to secure attachment. Mm -hmm. So, Sarah, the agreements with ourselves that you mentioned, yeah, are they made in that in that first four months? Or yes, thank you for bringing us back to that. That was exactly where I was going. <laughs> there are all kinds of agreements that are made in those first four months, and one of the agreements, one of the types of agreement that's made, takes us back to our conversation about. Stephen Porges and the hierarchy of safety that comes with an understanding of, of how important it is for us to have an yes answer to the question, am I safe, do I matter, am I safe, do I matter? When we get a yes answer to the question, am I safe, do I matter, then the nervous system shifts gear into social engagement. And you'll remember that social engagement does all kinds of wonderful things for the human body. It it makes the immune system work really well. It causes us to run on oxygen instead of on cortisol. The red blood cells literally pick up more oxygen when we have a sense of being safe and mattering. And 
and um, and when we have this experience of being safe and, and mattering, our brains are working at their best, and we have a lot of cognitive flexibility, and and we can make good decisions, take a lot of things into account, handle complexity. There's just all kinds of lovely benefits of the nervous system being in social engagement and having a sense of mattering and belonging. And of course, you'll, uh, to tie that back into our conversation about belonging before, uh, if you have a contract that says you don't matter, but you get to belong to to the group of white people, then all of a sudden, uh, your nervous system gets to work better and your immune system gets to work better. So again, we were talking about some of the rewards that come from um, going into those circles of belonging and circles where others are excluded. So uh, quite profound rewards that we have that, that we need to counteract, again, with the humility. But the contracts can take us into a frozen state. So mothers will turn away not just from sadness, not just from anger, not just from fear, but we know that avoidantly attached mothers will turn away from their baby's joy, Mm -hmm. that they'll diminish their baby's joy instead of supporting and encouraging the expression of life energy. And maybe you had the experience of having clients who say, I'm too much. I've always been too much. I'm always too much. This is the voice of uh, this baby, of a baby whose mother has turned away from joy and diminished joy. Now, a contract begins to be formed, an unconscious contract, an unconscious agreement, where the child who has joy that's turned away from, the result when someone turns away from our joy, our joy is essentially dyadic. When someone turns away from our joy, then a shame hit comes, cortisol. And uh, some people say that cortisol, that shame is the emotion that brings the largest flow of cortisol of any human emotion. It's like we're getting um, a neurobiological, uh, like cattle prod to our heart with the flow of cortisol. And we go, oh my God, this happened. My mother turned away from me or, or my parent or caretaker turned, turned away from me because I was too much. I have to be less. And we create, uh, with the help of the memory of the shame, we create internal prohibitions that stop us from expressing our full self because we never want to have to have that, that jolt of shame again. We want to try to figure out how we can behave that will allow us to belong to our circles and to be able to have that experience of being safe and mattering that lets everything work well. Because our very first circle of belonging is our circle of belonging with our moms. So, yes, we start creating these unconscious agreements very early. um, And then we continue, everyone continues to make these as we go through present time with any kind of trauma or experience where we're not fully accompanied. We'll try to make up uh, an agreement we can keep with ourselves that will keep us safe, that will keep us safe from shame, that will keep us safe from humiliation, that will keep us safe from exclusion. Is this making sense, Laura? Yeah, very much. And and now I'm just so curious about how, because when I think about something that starts so early, I know that as a therapist, it can be very hard for 
us to reach that information because mm-hmm. it's, you know, held non-verbally and it can be very hard for any client to be able to access that information, to be able to tell you, you know? Yeah. So now I'm curious about, so gosh, how, how do we reprogram those contracts, I guess? <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the first things, I mean, something that therapists really notice with their clients quite soon into the therapy relationship, they'll notice, oh, this client can't get mad. This client is afraid of anger. Uh-huh. Oh, this client never expresses fear. It's very interesting to begin to include a curiosity about disgust in our uh, work with clients because if someone has a frozen disgust circuit, which can happen from, um, from early experiences of our disgust not being okay, then what happens is that they won't know when things are too much. A part of what disgust does when it's a health, when it's in its healthy place, when it's in its right place, rather than being mobilized by leaders who use it to create in-group, out-group experiences, one of the things that disgust does is it gives us a healthy sense of disgust, gives us our boundaries, lets us know when somebody is intruding or violating us. And if we've got a frozen disgust circuit, if we've made an agreement with ourselves not even to feel disgust anymore, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, then what happens is that um, we can't tell, we can't find our own no. It can happen with rage. It can also happen with disgust that we'll lose our no. Um, and That I see so much, so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. So part of what we can welcome as uh, when we're working with people is we can welcome, in a way, the return of nausea. If We're not used to welcoming nausea. If uh, In the old days, before I started to understand this about disgust, when I was working with someone uh, and they said, oh, I'm feeling nauseous, I would, I would feel like panicked. I would like try to get them away from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would think, oh, no, I'm making them sick. But instead, if we go, oh, good, we need the nausea. And a par- so a part of what's happening in the therapy experience is that the therapist has a wider window of welcome for emotions than the mother originally had. The therapist is saying, hey, where's the anger? Hey, where's the fear? Hey, where's the disgust? And welcoming it when it comes, which is a beautiful counteractive experience to these early experiences that are pre-verbal. Because much of what's happening in the therapy relationship is also nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And so becoming aware of our own facial expression vocabulary is of great importance. When we're sad, does our face get to show sadness or do we try to hide it? Um, do we get to have uh, outrage and fury on behalf of our clients? Um, not enough, not in, expressed in a way that would scare them, but in a way that gives force and emphasis to our longing for their protection and a longing for something better for them. It's quite, uh, without even knowing it, these are the tools that every therapist is is using. Mm, yeah, and but... when you start to look at the contract work, if you're starting to get interested, the contract work actually is quite extraordinary for allowing 
previously unallowed circuits to come back online. So if we say, you know, do you have a contract? Sarah, do you have a contract not to feel anger? And then people will often say, yes. I even remember the day that I made that, <laughs> that contract when there was the middle of a domestic violence scene at home. And I was like, I'm never going to be that person. You know, this mm-hmm. is a later traumatic experience of closing down uh, emotional expression. But people will often have access to, once we start to ask, people often can touch the deep in order to's that come with the contract. I will not be sad in order to never burden anyone. And of course, the person that we're never burdening is probably our mother, but it gets globalized out. So if we hold, you know, you said, what do we do with things that are nonverbal? And what we do is we, we remember that the amygdala has no sense of time, that the amygdala, we talked about this in our, in our first conversation, that the amygdala has no sense of time and it creates trauma tangles. And what's hard about that is then that people have to live with PTSD, the intrusion of traumatic memory. But what's wonderful about that is that the amygdala is forever available for resonant support and healing. I like that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when you said that about the never being like that with the domestic violence scene, mm-hmm. you know, I immediately thought of for myself when I was a kid, um, not a domestic violence scene, fortunately, but it was just a moment of thinking, I am not going to cry at school. (laughs) Like, I think I was probably like seven and, you know, saying this year, I will not cry at school. And, you know, like reevaluating at the end of the year, well, I didn't quite make it, but I'm going to try again next year. I will never, I will not cry at school. And, Mm. and once I learned how to, you know, somehow learned, like, it wasn't like I did it like, okay, step one, step two, step three. But when I learned how not to cry, when I felt like crying, I was so proud of myself. I was like a triumph. I conquered the, you know, sensitivity that I was always told was too much. So that resonated so much for me. Like I can remember just making as such a young child, that conscious decision to try to change that about myself. And, you know, of course, later it became problematic that, you know, I couldn't access what I felt. Right, right. It's a a beautiful example. So if we got to work with you with the unconscious contract process, we would be saying, um, so is the contract something like I, Laura, solemnly swear to my essential self <laughs> that I will not? It's almost like we have to not not feel. Mm-hmm. I will not feel what I feel. Mm-hmm. And then we would say, in order to, and then you would fill in the blank there. In order to, you can if you want, or we can. Yeah, push. I think it was to be safe, just to to be yeah. safe. It sounded like it might also be belonging to be safe. And yeah. Belong. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last part of the contract, it's such an interesting part, is the, are the words, no matter the cost to myself. Mm-hmm. And with those words, we begin to feel into the consequence and the, and the after effects of, of the contracts, the cost of the contracts that we've made. I will not feel what I feel, no matter the cost to myself. 
And then once we have that, see, it's so unusual to use words mm -hmm. to describe these, these internal agreements that we have. Once we have used the words, then we get to, then we get to say, essential self of Laura, did you hear the contract? <laughs> and that part of us gets to speak. Oh, sometimes the part says, no, I didn't hear the contract. Then you say it again. But often the part says, yeah, I heard that contract. And then we get to say, do you want to keep it? Do you like it? Is it good for Laura now? And oh, then I can no. say, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I find it very useful myself to actually formally release the contract and to say, I release you, Sarah, from this contract. I revoke this vow. And then to say, what's, what will we do instead? And instead, I give you my blessing too. And what would your blessing for yourself be, Laura, instead of this? To feel all my feelings. Mm -hmm. And to enjoy belonging with people who also care about feelings. Yeah. There too. <laughs> and to create, to create a community where people get to have their feelings and yeah. share and talk about it and how important it is. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Which is what you've done. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> well, that's so beautiful and really powerful. And it makes me wonder with the workbook, is it meant to be worked by someone on their own or is it meant to be worked with a therapist together? Um, just like the first book, the Your Resonant Self book, it's very much available either, either or mm -hmm. for people to do with therapists, for people to do with peer groups, for people to do on their own in journaling processes. I've even had people start to do this kind of work alone with their cell phone recorders. Mm -hmm. They record their own process and listen to it or record their the, the voice of the part of the, the the voice of the part of the self that has the contract and then they get to listen to it and think about it. Yeah, so uh, there are many creative ways to work. And the more severe our trauma is, the more we need therapy support. I mean, I, yeah, I have fairly severe trauma and I love therapy. <laughs> I love therapy too. Yeah. It's like, where else can you just talk about yourself? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and someone just wants to listen, no matter how much you want to talk about yourself. They just, they yeah. want to hear it, you know? And they're wondering about us with warm curiosity. And they become a part of the upgrade, of the mother upgrade. That's the most wonderful thing. You know, when we find people who are resonant and who understand us, and they become a part of the new, the new 27 billion neurons. Mm -hmm. And that's so powerful, too, that whole image of the prefrontal cortex that you mentioned with the billions of cells and the mother mm -hmm. being 27 billion neurons, because it just makes me think whenever I hear about epigenetics, of course, I think about intergenerational transmission of trauma. Yeah. And when we replace or reshape the cells that weren't mothering us the way we needed yeah. with ones that are more nurturing, then we have more to pass on. More to pass on. It changes our children's lives. And really, I mean, as therapists, it changes the lives of everyone that you are holding. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone they interact with. And that yeah. is the interconnectedness. That is the interconnectedness. Yes, yes, yes. And it allows for an expanded sense of belonging so that we don't have to 
create our belonging in divisiveness. Mm, that is so my wish for us mm-hmm. as a culture to stop trying to spread violence and war around the world and spread connection and community. Yeah, and thoughtful, long-term consideration of our actions. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And how we're even connected to our, our planet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sarah, I am so grateful for the work you're doing. Truly, it's very unique. And really, I know it's um, influenced by so many others. And you you always share that. But what you're doing isn't like what anyone else is doing that I've seen. So I'm really grateful for for what you've created to share this with all of us. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm just delighted. I love our conversations. Me too. So where where can people get the new book? I know it's in pre-order uh, availability right now. Yeah, at the at your friendly online bookseller. So if you're someone who enjoys Amazon, it's uh, it's uh, listed for pre-order on Amazon and other online booksellers. And and it's coming out. It will be sent out on. May 25th. So if you order in advance, then you'll get the first copies as they come out of the press. Wonderful. And then for everyone who just can't wait, if they don't have the Your Resident Self book, that's already available. Yes, yes, that's there. That's uh, very available. And, um, and can you, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> I was just going to say, can you tell everyone where they can find all the good stuff you're doing? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, uh, sarahpayton.com now. A new working website where your products will be delivered to you without the intervention of my beloved help desk person. (laughs) (laughs) We just rolled out the new website this last week. So it's very exciting. sarahpayton.com. Congratulations on that. And I know that's a big undertaking. And and I know also that you have many offerings on your website. Will you just briefly tell people kind of what type of stuff they can find there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are there are a lot of webinars about any subject that you might imagine would be interesting, ranging from the neuroscience behind cutting and what we can do relationally and with resonance to begin to remedy a series of uh, presentations about attachment and Beatrice Beebe's work and how it has an impact for us as adults and what we can do about it. Lots of presentations about uh, different kinds of emotions, an entire 90-minute presentation on disgust, which is wonderful and life-changing. So all kinds of presentations like that and then also live offerings with the kind of uh, work that I do with groups doing family constellation work, even online. And, uh, and yeah, what, how, how do we make our brains good places to live? Oh gosh. And, and everything that I've experienced of your work has been wonderful and incredibly helpful. So, um, I encourage everyone to go check out your website. Thank you. Laura. Well, Sarah, I just want to thank you again for returning to therapy chat today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to therapy chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today.
With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you.